Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't come and read to us from a textbook? Wouldn't that have been awful? Yeah, it would be like school for the rest of your life. Yeah. And he said he came, he, you know, we know he came, he brought to us the Word, the Word of God, living, active, powerful, sharper need, two-edged sword. We're so thankful for that, thankful that he came and he talked to us about real things, about real life issues, things that matter. And so we're continuing today in our series in the parables. I, I actually had a bad dream about doing this message. <laughs> I was here on time. Uh, this is about oh, two weeks ago. I, I had this dream. And it's like I was back in the back here. And it was time for me to then come out here. And I, for whatever reason, I couldn't get here. You know, it was one of those dreams where you, know, you have those where you can't get where you're supposed to be. I couldn't get from there to here. And it, was, it went on and on. It's like, oh, man. And then I finally got out here, and I couldn't find my notes. I couldn't find my Bible. I'm reaching. I'm looking. I'm searching for everything. It's just crazy. It's, it's chaos for me. And so I think I eventually what I did is I just dismissed the service. <laughs> I know that's what some of you are hoping for right now. Um, but I do have my Bible. I've got my notes, so we're going to continue. We are in Luke 14, where Jesus told a story of someone wanting to build a tower, a guy wanting to build a tower, and he went and counted the cost of building that tower. And a, a king who was going to war, and he went and counted his, his troops to see how many he had, make sure he was ready for war. Talking about what it meant to follow him. Before Jesus told those two stories, he told two other stories about what following him is all about. And we're going to look at one of those this morning. To me, one of the boldest moments in Jesus' ministry. And he had a lot of bold moments, didn't he? I mean, think about it. Think about when he went and he cleansed the temple, right? And made a whip, a cord of cords. He makes this whip. He's driving people out. He's chasing them out with this whip. He's turning over tables. It's chaotic. It's a mess. And Jesus is is dealing with the financial institution of the temple. It's a big deal for their economy. He's dealing with the religious institution of the temple. He's dealing with all kinds of issues. He's just confronting it boldly at that moment. And then when he called the Pharisees and the scribes hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, full of dead men's bones. Pretty bold. This story, I think, is on par with that. The situation is we're told that Jesus is at a leading Pharisee's home. That ought to tell us something right there. I mean, how, how's this going to go? Jesus at a leading Pharisee's home. You know there's potential for some issues there, right? We always like to point out when we see Jesus hanging out with the down and out people, and those examples are great to see, but he didn't just go to them, did he? Here he is. You know, Pastor Kevin was just mentioned a few weeks ago how we sort of have a negative view of the, of the Pharisees. You know, that they're, you know, here these guys are. They, they certainly, they held to the Old Testament, but then they threw in all their other rules on top of it. And so they became very stringent and very negative. And, and we have this negative view of them. But in their culture, they were highly respected. So Jesus goes to one of the leaders' homes of these highly respected people. He, just, he didn't just go to the down and out people. He's at the home of one of the most respected men in the country. 
You were invited to come there and eat. It makes me think, you know, if I had been there, if I got invited to go to a Pharisee's house for dinner, would I want to go? And the reality is, no way. There's no way I would want to go to spend time in the evening with these smug, self-righteous people. I get thinking like that, and then I get convicted about that. Jesus went. Jesus went to spend time with smug, self-righteous people. Went to spend time with people that probably weren't the most enjoyable to be around. Were people who were easy to like. They were people who didn't like him. We know from the early verses of this chapter, they were watching him closely. They wanted to try to catch him doing something they could attack him for, and Jesus knows that. But he went there anyway. These guys are constantly trying to defeat him, to trap him, and it won't be long until they're trying to kill him. But he's there anyway. It convicts me about my lack of compassion. As he's watching them come in and get seated, he, he sees each of them, and they're looking for a place to sit. They're all looking for the best seat, a seat of honor, which was usually next to the owner of the home. Tables were set up typically in a U-shape. The owner would sit at the center of the cross table. The seat of honor was either to his right or his left or both, and then down the sides of the other tables, the other guests would go. And so these guys, they're fighting for the seat of honor. Why? Well, because they normally would want that, but especially at this time, because this, again, is one of their leaders. To score that seat, that would be bragging rights. And so we've got something going on a little bit, I think, like musical chairs, you know, where everybody's diving for that last seat. That's what's happening here. These guys are fighting for this. And so he be, as he's watching that, he begins to just tell this story and talk to them. And he starts in, we start in verse 7, he says, he begins speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man, and then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. But when, you ocup but when you are invited, go and recline at the last place so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. Jesus tells a story. It's almost like it doesn't seem like a, like a story at all. We'll get to that in a minute, but he, he tells a story about a wedding feast. And he says, hey, don't go grab the best seat. It'd be like if you were invited to a wedding today and, and you're the, you get there early, you're the first one there. And so you think, I'm going to get the best seat. And then you go right down to the front row and you sit down and you think, this is great. I've got the best seat. I can see everything. I'm right where I need to be. Well, then it's pretty embarrassing. Like when an usher comes down and says, hey, buddy, you got you to move back. You know, that's the seat for one of the moms. You know, that's, that's the situation we're talking about. 
Jesus is saying, it's way better, way better to take a back seat and have them come and say to you, why don't you move up? Then have the embarrassing situation of being in the front and having to move back. So that's the story, and it makes sense to us. But we're also told by Luke that it's a parable. Again, it doesn't seem so much like it. So we know this. It's got to have a higher, bigger meaning than just where you should sit at a party. Right? I think Jesus is pointing out something about where a person is spiritually. See, the reality is that sometimes what's in our heart is revealed by simple actions like where we sit. You're probably all thinking, well, you know, I'd never do that. I'd never go in and grab the best seat. You know, that's not, that's not me. Maybe not. But maybe our desire to get what's best for ourselves shows up in other ways. Think about it. You ever get jealous or critical of someone who seems like they're more successful than you are in a certain area? Does that ever happen? You ever get a twinge of jealousy that happens? You ever critical of them because they're a little bit more successful than you? Why do you think their success bothers you? Or how do you feel about losing? How do you react when you lose? You know, somebody beats you and then they can't quit talking about it. You know, and they just talk, you know how are you going to react to them? You ever have a hard time acknowledging when you're wrong? You've tried to prove some point and it's gone on far enough that there's now more at stake than the original point. Now you're arguing because your ego's on the line. I can't tell you how many times I've seen that in marriage counseling. Where a husband and wife start arguing about some issue. They've made their points. But it's like they can't give it up. Because somebody's going to lose and somebody's got to win. Do you ever have a hard time giving up? you ever have a hard time admitting that you're wrong? you ever cut in line at the airport? You're on the freeway? You know, are you that guy that everybody else is sitting in line and you're driving down the shoulder? Are you the guy sitting in line, upset with the guy driving up the shoulder? You ever get upset when you're not acknowledged? You know, when people don't always thank you for everything you do? Does any of that ever happen? You know why we react in those ways? It's because, well, we won't say it, and we may not even formulate that thought in our minds. Our actions tell us that deep down, deep down, we actually think that we deserve the place of honor. And it's sort of natural, we think, that we've been taught that. We all know. We've, we're immersed in a culture that says we should build our self-esteem. And even knowing that our culture's that way, and we, we've bought into that thinking, We've heard it so much, it sort of makes sense to us. So it bothers us when our position is challenged, however that may be. Remember Maslow's hierarchy of needs? 
being taught in school, those lower needs of, that were essential of food, water, and shelter. And then it built up to that pyramid, the greatest need of self-actualization. So for me to realize all I can achieve and acquire all I can acquire and do all I can, can do and be all I can be, I exist for me to achieve my full potential. And we've swallowed that. And anything that comes in the way of that, we're going to fight. And in that, we're more like the Pharisees than we want to imagine. We fight for our own seat of honor. Jesus here in Luke 14 is right in the Pharisees' faces. He's pointing out what's in their hearts. I mean, talk about what bold... Jesus at this leader's home confronting the Pharisees' self-centeredness. It is stunning. And maybe if he was here today, he would be pointing out what's in our hearts as well. But here's the deal. I don't think we've gotten to the real meaning of this parable yet. I don't think we've even touched on it. There's, more, there's something bigger than where we sit at a party. There's something even bigger than how we treat others and how we view ourselves. He caps the story off with verse 11 where he says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's a, that sounds familiar to us. It's, it's repeated over and over in Scripture. And, and, we, and, and we, you got to catch the idea. Obviously, God's going to deal with us either way. If we exalt ourselves, at some point he will humble us. If we humble ourselves, at some point he will exalt us. And I think that's keying us in on how we should understand this parable. Again, Jesus is watching these guys come in and fight for a seat. And I think what he's seeing here is a parallel between their scramble for that seat and how they've tried to connect to God. So the parable is not really so much about how we treat each other. The parable is about how we respond to God and how he has invited us to the dinner so that all of us have been invited to the table to be seated at a place of honor. So great. But some of us, you know, it's, it's an aspect of our salvation. It's, it's like we lose the wonder sometimes of our salvation. And, and I think it's great for us to, to get different word pictures in our head of what it's all about. And, and it points to different facets of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Here's this picture that maybe we haven't thought about a whole lot that Jesus gives us of being seated at a table. He's the host. We're the guests. And he's invited us to sit at the table with him. Sit at the table. It's so good. So great. But we lose the wonder and we lose the joy. It reminded me, as I'm thinking about this, and something we were dealing with as a family this week. Some of you know what happened this week to my son-in-law, our son-in-law, uh, Cameron. Cameron's a chaplain down 
uh, in the army down in, at Fort Bragg. And this past week, he was parachuting. And um, um, as he's dropping, it was sort of a windy day, another guy comes in from the side and gets sort of up under camera and takes his air, which is a scary situation because Cameron's parachute deflated at about what Cameron thinks was about 100 feet up. And uh, Carrie was there, our daughter Carrie was there with their kids, and she was videotaping, but it's way off, and so you, she really wasn't catching what was going on. And she sent us a videotape, and the first time I saw it, you're just, you know, she, but it's before we, any of us knew, before she even knew that anything wrong had happened. So you're watching and going, oh, wow, cool, look at all these guys coming down in parachutes. Uh, later on, you find out, oh, there's a problem, and you can sort of key in on it and see what happened. And all of a sudden, you see, as these two guys get close together, then one of them begins to drop faster. And he's, he's not completely free-falling, because the parachute's still got a drag on him, but he's falling way faster than he should have been. And uh, hit the ground, femur shattered. Um, uh, ended up in surgery. Um, they think he may need a second surgery somewhere down the road here, another month or two possi possibly. But if you could be praying for him, that'd be great. And I got to thinking about that story. And um, it's a lot like what we, happens to us spiritually sometimes. We come to Christ, and it's great. You know, everything's good. We're excited. We're pumped up. And then time happens, and events happen. And people happen. We get a little tired. We get frustrated. And the joy and the wonder of being able to be seated at the table with our Savior, we miss it. We've lost it somewhere. A couple of weeks ago, we were down at uh, Becky's mom's for her 80th birthday. We sort of had a surprise family reunion for her. And uh, we went to church with her, and uh, the pastor was preaching out of the Old Testament book of Haggai, and uh, he's making the point that, uh, that, as Haggai does in other places in Scripture, that you can't take something clean and something unclean and put them together and expect the clean to to stay clean and the unclean not to be changed, to be changed. You can't put it like this. You can't take a clean little boy, which I know is a little bit of an oxymoron. <laughs> you can't take a clean little boy and a dirty little boy and put them together and expect that the dirty little boy is going to become clean, right? It's not going to happen. The, the clean little boy is going to get dirty. 
That's the way it is in life. That's the way it is generally in life. And that's the way it is for us spiritually. We can't, we can't hang around and be a part of what's unclean and expect that we're going to stay clean. And so he's making the point. You need to live lives that are pleasing to God. It's a great point to make. We get reminded of it over and over in Scripture. That's the way life normally works. And I'm sitting there listening to this sermon and appreciating all that, and then it, but it hits me, and I sort of wanted to just sort of yell this out, but I didn't do it. Um, that there is one instance where that's not true. There's one exception to that, isn't there? There's the exception of we're dirty, we're unclean. And what happened was Christ came, he's clean, and he touched us, and he made us clean. He, the clean made the unclean clean. That's miraculous. That doesn't happen anywhere else in life, does it? But in Christ, when we came to him, that's exactly what happened. It's miraculous. It's one aspect of the great salvation that we are given. It doesn't happen, but it did. We came to him. We came to him broken, and he fixed us. Anyone that tells you that your brokenness is incurable doesn't know our Jesus. We came to him sick, and he healed us. We came to him dead, and he made us alive, and he invited us to the table. Just the fact that God would invite me to the table. I mean, who am I? I am nothing without him. All of us have been invited to the table of God's provision for us of salvation. Do not lose the wonder of that and the joy of that. And then there's others of us who think in some way because of things we've done, things we've tried to do, that we somehow deserve to be there. We've been taught that in some churches. We've bought that because it seems to make sense to us in a way. Somehow, we're trying to deserve to be there. And Jesus is pointing out that any thought that we might have, that we should have a seat of honor at the table because we somehow deserved it, because we fought hard enough for it, because we were raised in a certain way, because we did certain things, any thought that we deserve a seat, that type of thinking will only get us invited to the farthest point from the place of honor, the last place. That thought will leave us excluded from the table, excluded from sharing in the kingdom of God. But when we come to him broken and in gratitude for his invitation to us, and, and we know we need him, he provides us a seat at the table guaranteed. And so there's a challenge in what Christ is teaching, not just for the Pharisees, but for us as well. Will we be there? Are we seated at the table? Or have we somehow fooled ourselves into thinking we deserve a seat when our lives aren't really about Him? You say, well, you know, I, I'm not sure. I think I'm a Christian. I'm not sure. 
How, how, do, I, how do I know for sure? And I, I'm convinced that knowing for sure is part of what we should experience as believers. I think God wants us to know for sure. You know, John wrote, he said, I wrote these things so that you may know, for John 5, that you may know that you have eternal life. We've been given, according to Paul, Ephesians 1, a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance. Guaranteeing. I think you should know for sure. One of the ways you can know for sure is, having, is looking at the evidence. And so I want to just give you a list of things. Evidence that you're a believer. I've given these a number of years ago for the most part. I throw in the last one. It's something new this, this time I realized, oh, I shouldn't have left this out. They all start with the letter D. So here it goes. You want to know for sure you're a Christian? First thing you should see is that you've made a decision. A decision. There has to come a time when we come to Christ. Can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, and I've asked this question, are you a believer? Do you know, are you a Christian? And the answer, especially it seems like this has become a more popular answer for some reason. The answer I hear so often is, well, I've just, I've always believed. I think I know what you mean when you say that, but it's not a reality, is it? You haven't always believed because we were born, the Bible tells us we're born in sin, separated from God. Without hope in this world, we haven't always believed. There has to come a time when we've heard the truth that we are sinners, guilty before God, deserving of judgment, and without hope. We can't fix it ourselves. There has to come a time then when we say, okay, God, I get it. I'm, I am now making this decision to follow you. Now, you may not remember the date. You may not know the time, but there has to have been a time, if you're truly a believer, when you've gone from death spiritually to life spiritually. So if you're truly a believer, if you're wanting to know, and you want that assurance in your, your heart that you are a follower of Christ, that you're seated at the table, that you're only, you're guaranteed heaven someday, you want that assurance, you should be able to look back and go, I know this. I made the decision to follow Christ. If you don't know that you made that decision ever, then you need to consider, am I truly a follower? And if you don't know, and want to like to talk to somebody about that, be glad to talk to you at any time. Decision. Second thing is this. You got to have a dependence where you're completely dependent on God's grace for your salvation. So that if I stopped right now, if we just stopped, and if I ask you, okay, think in your mind, how do you know you're a Christian? And, and, the, and, the, and the first thing that comes to your mind is, well, I think I'm a Christian because I've done my best, which we all know isn't true, right? 
We haven't, none of us have done our best. But I'll let that go for a second. Done my best. I'm trying. You know, I go to church. I got baptized. I was a good husband, good wife, good neighbor, whatever. I, I've done my best. If, if the thing that comes to your mind is a list of things that you are doing or have done, something wrong with that. That's not the right answer. The right answer is what guarantees me heaven is that I'm totally dependent on God's grace because I'm a sinner who can't fix it. So when I made that decision to follow Christ, I was saying then and I'm saying now, I am dependent on his grace completely. That's what saves us. We're saved by grace alone. Third D, desire. You've got to have the desire to live in a way that honors God. You want to know, are you, are you a Christian? Are you a follower of Christ? Is there a desire in your life to honor God, to live in a Christ-like way? That doesn't mean you're perfect. That doesn't mean there aren't times when you struggle with sin. It means that the desire is there to live obediently to Him, that the general direction of your life is to live faithfully for Him. Jesus put it in the most succinct way. He said, you shall love your, the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. You've got to have a desire to love him and be obedient to him. It has to be there. You can't say, I'm a Christian and I'm doing things that are in direct disobedience to God and I'm living in this way and, and, and I've got this pattern going and, and I'm okay with it. It's not Okay. It's not consistent. It doesn't make sense logically. It doesn't make sense spiritually. It doesn't work. Got to be the desire to live in a way that pleases Him. Which brings us to the next piece of evidence. Doubt. Doubt. I know that sounds strange. But what I'm talking about is that question that comes to us, maybe especially when we've been disobedient and we wonder, am I really saved? Does a Christian do what I've just done? When those doubts cause you to reevaluate yourself and they drive you back to Christ so that you want to turn from your sin, you want to confirm your salvation, that to me is evidence of your salvation. Just the fact that you would question and that question bothers you and it drives you back to him. I don't think you should go on living your life in a constant state of questioning. But I think if, you, if that question, that doubt makes you reevaluate and you come to the reassurance, yes, and it drives you back to him, I think that God uses that. Again, if there's sin in your life and there's no desire to change it, and you're comfortable with it, and it doesn't cause you to question, you know, you're, you're comfortable living, you're comfortable living with someone outside of marriage, I mean, you've heard what God's Word says, but you're, you're okay with where you're at, you're comfortable watching that porn on the screen, 
watching that movie. You're comfortable having a critical spirit, always pointing out where you think things are wrong, always pointing out the negative of others. You're comfortable gossiping. If you're doing sin that you know is disobedient to God, there should be doubt. And that doubt should drive you back to Jesus. It's evidence that you belong to him. Which brings us to the next one, discipline. If you've been disobedient and you haven't turned from it, a real Christian will be disciplined by God. That's why Hebrews 12 tells us, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He scourges every son. How many? Every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. What's the writer of Hebrews tell us? He's telling us, if you're a Christian and you have gotten into some sin, then God, out of love for us, will discipline us. So if I'm trying to evaluate, am I a follower of Christ? Am I truly a believer? Then I should be able to look at it and go, okay, wait a second. Here's a period of time back here where I was disobedient to God and I was sort of going my own way, doing my own thing. And what did God do? Well, he grabbed me. He shook me. He brought me back. He disciplined me so that now I'm, I'm walking with him. That would be evidence that I'm a follower of Christ. If I'm going off in some sin and I'm comfortable with it like we were talking about a minute ago, and I'm comfortable with it and there's no discipline from God, Even worse than being disciplined by God is a scary reality of what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Is that if I, I'm, it doesn't matter if I say I'm a Christian, it doesn't matter how long I say I've been going to church or any other thing. I'm, if I am walking in sin and I am not turning from it and there is no discipline, even more frightening than being disciplined by God is the reality that the writer of Hebrews is telling us is that I'm not really a son at all. So if I want to know Am I a believer? You can look and see how's God treated me when I've been disobedient. Discipline will impact every true believer. So it is evidence that you belong to him. Last one. This is the one I didn't do before. Man, I can't believe I missed this. Declaration. Declaration. The Bible says in Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. When you are a follower of Christ, you know what it means to have the Spirit of God give you the assurance that you are his. You say, well, that seems sort of subjective. You know, how do you know? If you've had the experience of God's Spirit testifying to you, declaring to you, that you are his, you know it's not subjective at all. There is a calm assurance that you belong to him. And that calm assurance is evidence of salvation. So if these things are there, I've made a decision to follow Christ. I am continuing in total dependence on God's grace for my salvation. 
I desire to live in a life that's obedient to Him. When I don't live obediently to Him, there's some doubt in me that drives me back to Him. And when I have lived in disobedience, there is discipline that God has brought to me out of love for me. And His Spirit declares to me that I am His child. There's incredible, real assurance that we're His. We can be confident that we get to enjoy all the blessings of heaven. We can be confident that we are seated at the table with Him in a place of honor. The Bible talks about rest. Remember Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. The book of Hebrews talks a lot about the fact that we've been given a spiritual rest, that we've entered into rest. I'm convinced that God wants every true believer to know that they are His and be confident of that fact so that you know you are resting in Him. You aren't, you aren't fighting for it. You aren't striving to get to a seat of honor. You know you've been placed there. You've been seated there by Him. You can just rest in it. You get to enjoy it. You get to celebrate it. If you know that fact, if you know you're assured you're a follower of Christ, you look through that list and you know, yeah, I, I get it all. I've seen it all. God's blessed me with all of that. I've got that. I know I'm a follower of Christ. I know I'm seated at the table. Enjoy that. Enjoy the wonder of it. Enjoy the, the amazingness of God's love for you. That he would take any of us and invite us to the table for free. What a blessing. And if you're not sure, and you're not convinced, maybe you've got other questions about it. Again, I'd love to talk with you. We're going to dismiss in just a minute. You can come back to room one. There'll be pastors there to talk to you about what it means to walk with Christ in this life so that you can know for sure you're seated with Him at a place of honor. Right now, I'm going to ask you to stand up. And we're going to close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for loving us. We, we get it, Father. We don't deserve it. You've blessed us with the opportunity to, to walk through life with you. We know you've loved us. It's, been, it's a pure love. It's an absolutely holy love. You brought us to yourself. You've made us your children. You've adopted us into your family. You took us from death to life. How many ways, God, can we say thank you for all the... The, the aspects of our salvation. Thank you, God, for seating us at the table. Thank you for the assurance that we have that we are yours. And for any that might be here, God, who don't know that for sure, God, that today they would, they would make that decision, they would follow you and know your love and grace. Thanks, Father, for the day. I ask you to bless this day, bless our week ahead, help us to live faithful, faithfully for you. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for being here. We'll see you next Sunday.